Book Five, Chapter Three of Les Misérables, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Portinga. Les Misérables by Victor Hugo, Book Five: The Descent, Chapter Three: Sums Deposited with Lafitte. On the other hand, he remained as simple as on the first day. He had gray hair, a serious eye, the sunburned complexion of a laborer, the thoughtful visage of a philosopher. He habitually wore a hat with a wide brim, and a long coat of coarse cloth, buttoned to the chin. He fulfilled his duties as mayor, but, with that exception, he lived in solitude. He spoke to but few people. He avoided polite attentions. He escaped quickly. He smiled to relieve himself of the necessity of talking. He gave, in order to get rid of the necessity for smiling. The women said of him, What a good-natured bear! His pleasure consisted in strolling in the fields. He always took his meals alone, with an open book before him, which he read. He had a well-selected little library. He loved books. Books are cold but safe, friends. In proportion, as leisure came to him with fortune, he seemed to take advantage of it to cultivate his mind. It had been observed that, ever since his arrival at Montreuil-sur-Mer, his language had grown more polished, more choice, and more gentle with every passing year. He liked to carry a gun with him on his strolls, but he rarely made use of it. When he did happen to do so, his shooting was something so infallible as to inspire terror. He never killed an inoffensive animal. He never shot at a little bird. Although he was no longer young, it was thought that he was still prodigiously strong. He offered his assistance to anyone who was in need of it, lifted a horse, released a wheel clogged in the mud, or stopped a runaway bull by the horns. He always had his pocket full of money when he went out, but they were empty on his return. When he passed through a village, the ragged brats ran joyously after him and surrounded him like a swarm of gnats. It was thought that he must, in the past, have lived a country life, since he knew all sorts of useful secrets, which he taught to the peasants. He taught them how to destroy scurf on wheat, by sprinkling it and the granary, and inundating the cracks in the floor with a solution of common salt, and how to chase away weevils by hanging up orviate in bloom everywhere, on the walls and the ceilings, among the grass and in the houses. He had recipes for exterminating from a field blight, tares, foxtail, and all parasitic growths which destroy the wheat. He defended a rabbit warren against rats, simply by the odor of a guinea pig which he placed in it. One day he saw some country people busily engaged in pulling up nettles. He examined the plants, which were uprooted and already dried, and said, They are dead. Nevertheless, it would be a good thing to know how to make use of them. When the nettle is young, the leaf makes an excellent vegetable. When it is older, it has filaments and fibers like hemp and flax. Nettle cloth is as good as linen cloth. Chopped up, nettles are good for poultry. Pounded, they are good for horned cattle. The seed of the nettle, mixed with fodder, gives gloss to the hair of the animals. The root, mixed with salt, produces a beautiful yellow coloring matter. Moreover, it is an excellent hay, which can be cut twice. And what is required for the nettle? A little soil, no care, no culture. Only the seed falls as it is ripe, and it is difficult to collect it. That is all. With the exercise of a little care, the nettle could be made useful. It is neglected, and it becomes hurtful. It is exterminated. How many men resemble the nettle? 
he added after a pause. Remember this, my friends. There are no such things as bad plants or bad men. There are only bad cultivators. The children loved him because he knew how to make charming little trifles of straw and coconuts. When he saw the door of a church hung in black, he entered. He sought out funerals as other men seek christenings. Widowhood and the grief of others attracted him because of his great gentleness. He mingled with the friends clad in mourning, with families dressed in black, with the priests groaning around a coffin. He seemed to like to give to his thoughts for text these funereal psalmodies filled with the vision of the other world. With his eyes fixed on heaven, he listened with a sort of aspiration towards all the mysteries of the infinite, those sad voices which sing on the verge of the obscure abyss of death. He performed a multitude of good actions, concealing his agency in them as a man conceals himself because of evil actions. He penetrated houses privately, at night. He ascended staircases furtively. A poor wretch, on returning to his attic, would find that his door had been opened, sometimes even forced, during his absence. The poor man made a clamor over it. Some malefactor had been there. He entered, and the first thing he beheld was a piece of gold lying forgotten on some piece of furniture. The malefactor, who had been there, was Father Madeleine. He was affable and sad. The people said, There is a rich man who has not a haughty air. There is a happy man who has not a contented air. Some people maintained that he was a mysterious person, and that no one ever entered his chamber, which was a regular anchorite cell, furnished with winged hour-glasses and enlivened by crossbones and skulls of dead men. This was much talked of, so that one of the elegant and malicious young women of Montreuil-sur-Mer came to him one day and asked, Monsieur le maire, pray show us your chamber. It is said to be a grotto. He smiled and introduced them instantly into this grotto. They were well punished for their curiosity. The room was very simply furnished in mahogany, which was rather ugly, like all furniture of that sort, and hung with paper worth twelve sous. They could see nothing remarkable about it, except two candlesticks of antique pattern which stood on the chimney-piece and appeared to be silver, for they were hallmarked, an observation full of the type of wit of petty towns. Nevertheless, people continued to say that no one ever got into the room, and that it was a hermit's cave, a mysterious retreat, a hole, a tomb. It was also whispered about that he had immense sums deposited with Lafitte, with this particular feature that they were always at his immediate disposal, so that, it was added, Monsieur Madeleine could make his appearance at Lafitte's any morning, sign a receipt, and carry off his two or three millions in ten minutes. In reality, these two or three millions were reducible, as we have said, to six hundred and thirty or forty thousand francs. End of Book 5, Chapter 3